And so it struck me as interesting that so many people, both as individuals and as individuals in households and at so many firms of whatever size were deeply embedded in these credit relationships. So many economic actors were borrowing money from somebody else. And so it seemed to me that this question of how you decide whom to trust is being posed and answered a million times every day. You know, it's a pervasive issue and it's been going on for centuries because credit is not a new invention. Its extent may be unprecedented, but it's been going on forever. People have been accomplishing their transactions in the marketplace through borrowing. And so it struck me as, well, it would be very interesting to see how this process, how this question has been posed over time. It's interesting that it is so fundamentally connected to the issue of trust and who you trust and how you determine who is trustworthy. And it clearly animates and makes possible a modern economy, which of course is very heavily dependent upon credit. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von Delier, and this episode is the first one in a series on the topic of global governance. Today I am talking to Bruce Carruthers, professor in sociology at Northwestern University in Chicago, USA. Bruce Carruthers is also a non-resident long-term fellow in the program on global governance here at SCAS and was in residence in the academic year of 2018-19. The research of Bruce Carruthers is interdisciplinary and includes economic sociology, comparative and historical sociology, the sociology of law and the sociology of organizations. And his current research focuses on the history of credit and credit decision-making in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries and we will hear a lot more about that in this episode. We will also hear about a brand new project later on in this podcast episode. So welcome Bruce Carruthers. You have joined us via link from Chicago, USA. We're happy to have you here on SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, first of all, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be here and to join you in the audience to have a conversation about my research. As you said, I'm a kind of combination of economic sociology and comparative historical sociology, although I will say that when I began my career, I really considered myself to be a comparative historical sociologist, and it was only kind of with the unfolding of my research interests that I realized I was also an economic sociologist. So the The second identity kind of came later than the first, but really I wear two hats in the academy. And so I always like to study the economy. I like to take a historical perspective on the economy. I like to do comparative research. And I cover lots of different periods of time, starting in the 17th century in in England and the emergence of financial markets in that time period, all the way up to the current global changes in in global finance uh, that are unfolding today. So I get uh, lots of things to think about, lots of uh, issues to study. That sounds very interesting and also lots of different disciplines to interact with. So from the beginning, how did you get into this subject? How did you get interested in sociology and then subsequently in economic sociology? I was in an interdisciplinary program as an undergraduate. 
and this is back in the 1970s, so I don't want to tell your audience how old I am, but I'm old enough to have gone to college in the 1970s, and interdisciplinarity was at that point quite unusual. And so the program that I was in really encouraged interdisciplinary thinking. And so I took lots of social science courses from multiple disciplines, including economics. And my exposure to economics at that level, the conclusion that I drew from it was that, gee, economics is interesting. As a discipline, it studies a topic that I find interesting. But I did not at all believe the approach that the economists took. So I found the kind of assumptions that were made about the hyper-rationality of atomized individual decision makers and the sort of relentless optimization processes that were going on or the constrained optimization models. I just thought all that was just couldn't possibly be true, but I sure thought the economy was interesting. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. The program that I was in was really focused on, on communications, on information, on mass media, and I discovered that I enjoyed the academy very much. I had a lovely time as an undergraduate. I really loved my classes, and I thought it was so wonderful to think about ideas and so forth. And uh, I realized that there really was no natural graduate uh, program for me to go on to from where I had started, you know, which is I started in this very interdisciplinary program. And there there just weren't graduate programs in interdisciplinarity, or you couldn't get a PhD in, in interdisciplinarity. So I had to kind of pick a discipline, and I'd taken one class in sociology, and I enjoyed it. But of course, I enjoyed all my classes. But I decided from the one little taste that I had of sociology that that might be a good bet for me to go in as my future direction for graduate school. And so I decided, well, I will go off and, and, and go to graduate school in sociology. And so then I became a sociologist, although I really had no knowledge of it and I didn't have a strong background in it. But I just made a bet that it offered the kind of openness and flexibility of inquiry that I enjoyed in my interdisciplinary program, only it was given a disciplinary label. It was called sociology. And so, so then, then I became a sociologist and, and have continued since then. But I, what I do like about sociology is, is that it's a very wide open disciplinary space in which you can study lots of things in lots of different ways that, that relate to human behavior. And that kind of capaciousness is very attractive to me. I also appreciate um, looking at several subjects and the connections um, between them. So I understand you. And it's a little bit strange if they have an undergraduate interdisciplinary program and then, then it stops. Yeah, it was very unusual at the time, but I really liked it. And so the people, the, my professors in the program, you know, they, of course, had their own disciplinary training. But the most important professors that I, I took classes with and who really influenced my early intellectual life, you know, one had a Ph.D. in comparative literature and one had a Ph.D. in anthropology and one had a Ph.D. in communications and one had a Ph.D. in economics. So and they were all in the same department. So, of course, even within that one department, there was this very lovely interdisciplinary uh, happening. And so I just thought, wow, I love interdisciplinarity. I will try to keep it going. And so off I went into sociology. But of course, this means, you know, much later in my career, when I have opportunities to work in an interdisciplinary environment, they are very attractive to me. They, they go very deep in my sort of academic consciousness. I really like that, uh, that kind of place.
Yeah, looking at your CV, I've understood that. And we might come back to this later, since we're also in this environment at the Swedish Collegium where a lot of different disciplines meet. But now first, I want to talk a little bit more about your, your research. And uh, very briefly, if you're supposed to summarize, what is your research about? What do you look at? Well, how many hours do we have? I will try to be brief. So my main project, which is you know what I devoted most of my time when I was at SCAS to, is this historical study of the rise of a credit economy in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. There are several labels that you could attach to that project. It's simultaneously a study in economic history. It's a study of mechanisms and social institutions that enable trust and trustworthiness, which of course is the underside, the foundation of credit relationships. And it's really partly because the U.S. becomes so influential, uh, you know, becomes the world's biggest economy and it becomes the sort of global hegemon after World War II and so forth. Many of the peculiar institutions of American capitalism gain global significance because the U.S. becomes globally significant. So even though I'm looking at a distinctively American story of looking at the development of a credit economy and the sort of economic growth that follows uh, from that, and how more and more consumers are able to borrow more and more money and how this fuels demand and you have the rise of a consumer economy. All of that stuff happens in a way that becomes globally influential simply because after World War II, you know, the United States becomes very much at the center of the Western international economy. And so these very peculiar institutions are worth knowing, not only if one wants to understand American economic history, but also because they help us understand what are the uh, global institutions now that are influential and which, which affect global capital markets and global credit and all of that. So I've really picked a topic where I, I tried to pick a topic that had a very specific story and very specific roots, but that as this process unfolded, so that's the kind of major focus. But as you mentioned in your introduction, there are some other projects that, that I'm pursuing that are, you know, connected in, in funny, different little uh, ways to these, these overall questions. But, you know, like many sociologists, I'm very interested in how a modern economy works and what is driving it forward. Uh, what are its foibles? What are its features? What are its historical roots? Uh, you know, if you look at the founding fathers of sociology, people like Karl Marx and Emil Durkheim and Max Weber and so forth on the European side, they were all busy trying to understand the process of industrialization and the rise of industrial capitalism in the 19th century. And so that kind of sociological obsession with how economic change is unfolding and its social impacts, I, I share in that kind of sociological obsession only. You know, 19th century industrialization is way behind us. Now we're we're moving into the world of digital commerce and things are unfolding in very different ways. But still, as a sociologist, I really am deeply interested in how the economy works. So I think in that way, you know, I haven't wandered too far from the pathway blazed by uh, the people who created sociology. So you already mentioned it, your project during your stay at uh, SCAS. You were then working on a project about financial credit and um, trust. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? What was your starting point there? So I have long been interested in financial markets and you know financial transactions. And many of these are, you know, in stylized form, simply a matter of one party giving money to another party, and, and it's called a loan. So one, one side lends money to another, or one side invests money in another. And their expectation is that they will get something back in the future, that the, the debtor will, will repay the loan, or the investment will pay off, and they will benefit in the future. So that's the kind of fundamental financial you know, transaction at, at its base. And I think for me, it was very interesting to think about how people decided whom to trust. So I understood this to be fundamentally a process of trusting someone, because if you don't trust them, you will, of course, not lend them the money because you think they may not be able to repay the, the loan or they either will not be willing to repay it or they may be unable to repay it. It could be either one of those things. And so it struck me as interesting that uh, so many people, both as individuals and as individuals in households and uh, so many firms of whatever size were deeply embedded in uh, these credit relationships. So many economic actors were borrowing money from somebody else. And so it, it seemed to me that this question of how you decide whom to trust is being posed and answered a million times every day. You know, it's a pervasive issue. Uh, and it's been going on for centuries because credit is not a new invention. Its extent may be unprecedented, but it's been going on forever. People have been accomplishing their transactions in the marketplace through borrowing. And so it struck me as, well, it would be very interesting to see how this process, how this question has been posed over time. It's interesting that it is so fundamentally connected to the issue of trust and who you trust and how you determine who is trustworthy. And it clearly animates and makes possible a modern, a modern economy, which, of course, is very heavily uh, dependent upon credit. So then I kind of thought, well, this, this is an interesting process. What are some social science theories that I can use to try to figure it out? And in, starting in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, there was actually quite a big, vigorous social science discussion over what is trust, how is trust created, and what sort of consequences trust has. And uh, although not everyone always uses the language of trust, uh, there's a big literature on what's called social capital, which bleeds into this discussion of trust in a pretty direct way. But people were trying to figure out you know, are there societies where people in general trust each other? And so for me, that would be a way of saying, well, is that a society where it's easier to establish credit relations? Are there societies where trust is lower? What actually does trust accomplish? You know, how do we decide who is trustworthy? Is it sort of emotional, expressive activity? Or is it very nuts and bolts and highly rational and very calculative? You know, what, what drives the process of, of doing that? So the more I got into it, uh, especially given that it was clear that interesting things had happened over time, especially when it became clear that the particular devices and institutions that were developed in the United States to deal with this issue of trust in credit then got exported to the entire globe and became globally significant, I thought, 
well, gee, this will be an interesting topic. I can study how things unfold over time. I can look at an interesting historical development. It's deeply connected to the operation of a modern economy. So I can keep my, I can do both my comparative historical and my economic sociology uh, pursuits at the same time. It's a problem that is both very practical in the sense that you know if if you open a business, one of the challenges that you will face as a business person are you know how do you obtain credit, you know how do you get money to to fund your business, and also you may face the challenge of having customers who want credit from you. So you are simultaneously on both sides of credit transactions. So it's a deeply practical problem. You know, it really is not a kind of an academic question, but it also has been very heavily theorized. If you go back and look in business history, you'll find lots and lots of people who have stories and explanations about how you decide who to trust and how you appear trustworthy to others. And so, you know, in my reading on this, you know, I could start as far back as Daniel Defoe, who's, you know, the famous English author who also wrote business handbooks. And he's got ideas about, you know, who you can trust and how you appear trustworthy and so forth. But it never stops. People are always generating theories and explanations and so forth. So it was kind of an interesting problem that had both a theoretical and a practical side to it. So once I, you know, saw all these virtues, I thought, okay, I'm all in on this. And you know, as a practical matter, my my early research uh, had been on the English financial revolution of the late 17th and early 18th century. And in order to do that research, I spent time in England, in the archives, in the Bank of England, and so forth. Well, after that, I started to look for projects where I wouldn't have to go abroad to an archive. By the 1990s, I had a young family. I needed to find a research topic that uh, made it easier for me to reconcile my work life and my family life. Uh, and so I thought, well, if I just study something that's going on or did go on in the United States, it will be much easier because then I only need to do travel domestically and increasingly um, sources were were being uh, made available online. So maybe I don't even have to travel to archives. And so that was a, a, a background practical consideration that made it seem like a good idea to focus on um, on this topic of of American economic history and the rise of a of an American credit economy. Sure. And that is also what you have done. And you have looked at this, at, as you've just told us, trust and credit. So what have your findings been there? What have you found in your in your project? Well, of course, I found many interesting things. Uh, some of them are particular to American society. So one of the things that is very important in the United States, both for the well-being of households, for their ability to accumulate wealth, has uh, uh, been the process through which people buy a home. So uh, in the United States, typically people uh, will buy homes with a very small down payment. That is, they will uh, contribute a certain amount of cash that they've saved, but mostly they will borrow it. So they borrow a very large sum of money. Usually it's the biggest debt uh, that someone undertakes. And then they buy a home. And the thing about buying a home in American society is that where you live is enormously consequential because where you live affects what kind of schools your children will go to. It affects what kind of employment opportunities that you will have. It affects what kind of social environment you will be living in. It affects uh, whether your environment will be a safe one or a dangerous one, a high crime neighborhood or a low crime neighborhood. 
so many things are associated with residents in the United States. And so that makes the access to mortgage credit really an important driver in the patterning of American society. And as many people know, when it comes to housing, there are parts of the United States that are incredibly segregated racially. And so racial segregation is one of the outcomes of the operation, this historical operation of mortgage credit markets. And so if you start to study trust and credit and get into looking at how it affects uh, mortgage markets, you are studying a deeply consequential process that has helped to organize American society for you know the last hundred years. Uh, so that was uh, an interesting thing uh, to come at you know through credit markets. But more generally, I would say the thing that I, I was most interested in was to witness the change in how lenders made credit decisions and the growing importance of highly standardized quantitative measures of creditworthiness. And these are uh, called credit scores or credit ratings. And they were developed uh, starting in the middle of the 19th century so kind of earlier than I expected. And they were developed in the context of um, small business trade credit, uh, you know, which is a very particular kind of credit. But what happened was people in small businesses in the United States were starting to have customers who were no longer part of their community. These were not uh, local customers. These were customers who might be in a different state or they might be in a different region of the country. And they were very important. And if you were running a, uh, a wholesale operation, for example, it was very difficult for you to sell your goods except on credit. So your customers expected that you would give them credit, uh, that you would ship them the goods that they wanted to buy and that they would pay you later. And so you would establish a sales relationship, but also a credit relationship at the same time. That problem is quite soluble if both your customers and the firms are all part of the same community, they're all have part of the same social networks, maybe they uh, live nearer to each other, or they are members of the same church congregation, or their children go to the same schools. There are many, many social ties that are incredibly dense in small local communities. And all of the, that density of social connection can be used and was used by business decision makers to figure out who was trustworthy. So you would very easily figure out somebody's business reputation because you either knew them directly or you would know someone who knew them or you would know someone at church who knew them or there were all these different direct and indirect ways to kind of ascertain their trustworthiness in a way that was quite credible. But as soon as um, commerce kind of went up to a national scale, those local connections didn't exist. They didn't span across the country. They were good if you were living in New York and all your customers were in New York. You could acquire a lot of information about somebody's uh, trustworthiness in that locale. But once your customers start to you know, make orders from Chicago or they're in San Francisco, they're all strangers to you. You have no idea who these people are and they want your business. And you want their business. And so what happened in the starting in the 1840s, but in a way that expanded throughout the 19th century, is credit rating agencies were established to help businesses solve the problem of whom to trust. And what they did was they built up 
a kind of an information gathering apparatus. So they would gather information from all over the country. They had eventually offices all over the country. They had informants who provided them with confidential information. And all this information would funnel in to their headquarters in New York City. And then it would be processed and recorded and turned into credit reports and then into credit ratings. And so if you were a business who wanted to know, you know, can I trust this firm out in Chicago called Carruthers Incorporated? Uh, he, you know, wants to buy some goods from me and I want to know if he's trustworthy. I've never heard of Carruthers. I don't know anyone who knows Carruthers. He's a complete stranger. He may not even exist. What you could do is you could go down to the rating agency and say, I'm interested in this firm in Chicago called Carruthers. Tell me what you know about them. And they would supply information. And so uh, this started in this particular area of, of unsecured trade credit. But the method of gathering information and processing it and turning it into a systematic, standardized measure of creditworthiness this method proved to be very powerful and it spread. And so by the end of the 19th century, it's part of everyday business practice. So these firms expand, they're evaluating millions of other firms. So, and this is all before the age of computers. So it's a massive information processing system and they're selling their information to their clients. And so what happened? So this was in the particular area of unsecured trade credit. So it was very much focused on small businesses distributed nationally. They open offices internationally. So they start to provide information around the globe on small businesses. But the method of rating and of offering a summary measure of credit worthiness is so powerful that a very different credit problem adopts the same method. And the new credit problem it's not uh, unsecured trade credit for small businesses, but it's uh, large businesses who want to sell bonds. And particularly at the end of the 19th century and, and into the early 20th century in the United States, especially the railroads. So Moody's, the famous bond rating agency that is still with us, was founded in the early 20th century. And Moody's basically does for bonds, for railroad bonds, but then all bonds. They do for bonds what the credit rating agencies did for unsecured trade credit, which is they gathered all kinds of information about a railroad or a corporation or a sovereign debtor, and they produce and provide to their customers a summary measure. And so the idiom, the category system that Moody's adopted is now known throughout the world, and it's a way of classifying bonds so that the most valuable, most trustworthy bonds are rated triple A. You know, and so if you get a AAA rating on your bonds, that means you as a debtor are considered by the rating agency to be the most trustworthy borrower. Your bonds are given the very highest rating and you can borrow at very low interest rates, you know, which of course is very good for you. And if you aren't as good, then maybe you'll be given a, a double A rating or a single A rating or a triple B rating. And so the category system is ordered. Uh, from the most creditworthy to the least creditworthy. Well, that category system, Moody's didn't invent. Moody essentially borrowed it from the rating agencies who developed it earlier in the 19th century. The idea that creditworthiness can now be summarized with a single summary measure 
and that that measure itself will be used by decision makers to buy bonds or to extend credit to a firm or whatnot. And so I was very interested that this kind of information, these ratings, became so singularly important in the allocation of credit. So I've talked about small businesses, I've talked about big businesses, and then what happened was individuals started to get their own personal credit rated. And so in the 1950s, you see the emergence of national credit rating agencies in the United States that they're not interested in small businesses. They're not interested in big businesses. They're interested in individuals and households. And so they create something that is now very pervasive called a FICO score, F-I-C-O. And I have a FICO score. Anyone who borrows money or has a credit record in the United States has a FICO score. And you know, if I want to borrow money, the first thing that a lender will do is they will consult my FICO score. And it's a number, you know, and, and it, if it's high, then, then they regard me as a very uh, creditworthy individual. And if it's low, they don't. And these are, you know, lenders who have no personal information of, about me. They don't know who I am. They're not my neighbors. They don't talk to my friends and colleagues about whether I'm a trustworthy guy. So these, the emergence and the development of these uh, scores and ratings and, and whatnot uh, have been absolutely critical in the ability in the United States to allocate credit to strangers and to to do this on a mass scale. So outside of the world of personal knowledge and personal ties and personal social networks, how can we allocate credit? Well, these different kind of institutional devices, the scores and the ratings these have been enormously important. And so their historical emergence has made possible credit on a mass scale. So I was very interested in, in how, how these things work, who invented them, do they do the job that they claim to be doing? And now, of course, you know, again, uh, I said earlier that, that things that were invented in the United States, the peculiarities of the United States have become, have become globally significant simply because the U.S. Is, has been so important. So if you look at uh, bond rating, bond ratings that Moody's and Standard & Poor's and Fitch create, you know, every, you know, sovereign borrower around the world, you know, if Argentina wants to borrow money and issue bonds, they get rated by Moody's. If uh, South Africa wants to borrow money, they will issue bonds. They get rated by Moody's. Uh, Sweden gets rated by Moody's. The Canadian government gets rated by Moody's. These rating agencies are making determinations that are globally significant and which are affecting you know, global investment flows. So they really are uh, key players in the global capital market, even though they mostly are based in New York City, and even though their historical roots are tied to this very peculiarly American system of creating measures and organizations who develop these measures for ascertaining the trustworthiness of a borrower, whether that borrower is an individual or a small business or a big business or a sovereign government. It kind of doesn't matter. This is a system that encompasses everyone. 
But what happens when these agencies are, agencies are wrong and make the wrong ratings? As I've understood that during the financial crisis 2008, these credit rating agencies performed quite um, poorly. Absolutely. They performed terribly. And, you know, what was interesting in the United States, the major reform measure that came after the global financial crisis of 2008 was something called Dodd-Frank. It's the Dodd-Frank law. Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank uh, were the two chief authors of this. And I was working on this project, so I was very interested in, in what, what's going to happen to the rating agencies. And very little happened to the rating agencies, even though they performed very poorly, particularly when it came to subprime mortgage. You know, the subprime mortgage market, as, as many people know, the default rates were very high and the, the ratings had been wildly optimistic. But for the architects of Dodd-Frank, it was very hard for them to imagine modern or contemporary American capital markets operating without the rating agencies. They'd become so central. So the reforms were quite, I would say, weak. They offered a little more oversight over the, over the rating agencies because these are, the rating agencies are, are private, for-profit firms. You know, they're, they're just in it to make money. So there was very little, little oversight. And some of the, the legal issues were resolved much earlier. And, and the, one of the chief legal issues is what kind of legal status does a rating have? And early on, the American courts decided that a rating is an opinion. So, you know, giving a bond, a AAA rating, is a way in which Moody's or S&P or Fitch express their opinion about the creditworthiness of a particular security or, uh, or debtor. And the thing about opinions is they can't be wrong. So even though there was this very elaborate apparatus that was built up that said, you know, these ratings are useful, and if a firm has given a AAA rating, it means they're very unlikely to default, they're you know, to be trusted, and if they're giving a, given a low rating, it's what we might call a junk bond. All of that stuff was going on. People were you know, emphasizing how useful these ratings were in informing you know, investment decisions. But when you got the lawyers in the room, when it came down to it, what kind of responsibility does the rating agency have? It turns out that these things were just opinions. And so they were off the hook uh, from a legal standpoint. And that status has been in place for a very long time. So, you know, I can have an opinion, you can have an opinion. Our opinions are neither, you know, right nor wrong because they're not claims about truth. And so in that sense, the rating agencies, even though they did very, very poorly going through the global financial crisis and, and, and they were subject to really scathing criticism, from many, many sides, legally, they were not very um, vulnerable because they, they were just giving their opinions. And they continue to give their opinions. They continue to issue ratings and to play a very important role in global credit markets. And some of that is because users will, you know, people that, that pay attention to ratings will use them to guide their own investment decisions, but also because a lot of regulations use the ratings. So prudential regulations for pension funds or insurance companies will often import the ratings that have been created by these rating agencies. 
So in that case, they're, they're given a certain measure of regulatory or legal standing. But what kind of consequences does this have then, that they give a poor rating or that it's not correct, so to say? The, the consequences are, are huge. And, you know, there's a particular threshold in this category system. Basically, if you're, a, if you're above that, you're categorized as investment grade. And if you're below that, you're called below investment grade. And there are many investors, institutional investors, like pension funds and insurance companies, who are subject to rules that are basically saying to this institutional investor, you know, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your beneficiaries. And, and so you can't invest in things that are too risky because, you know, you need to have safe investments because if you're a pension fund, you know, you're going to have to, you know, pay someone income when they retire in 50 years. And that's way off in the future. So we want to make sure that when you're taking their money and investing it, you're putting it into a safe investment. And the definition of safe is above investment grade. So for a lot of investors around the world, that distinction between investment grade and below investment grade is very consequential. And what it means is if you are a firm or you're a borrower and you're right on the edge of that threshold, if you get downgraded, so if Moody's says about your firm, you know, you've, you've had a bad year, uh, you're not performing very well, we actually think that you are uh, a riskier uh, investment and you, you may, we're not so sure that you're going to be able to repay the interest that you owe on, on your bonds. If they drop your bond rating from invest, above investment grade to below investment grade, then suddenly around the world, many, many institutional investors have to unload your bonds. They have to sell them because they will no longer be in compliance with their own prudential regulations. And so it can be a disaster because if everyone is dumping your bonds, you know, the market falls away, the, the price of your bonds drops away. And it's a catastrophe for the borrower because it means that if they're going to borrow again, they have to borrow at a much more, a much higher interest rate. So one of the things that happens is debtors, including sovereign countries, will be making very special efforts to please the rating agencies, to placate them, to you know do whatever the rating agencies think uh, needs to be done in order to maintain the rating, especially to keep it above that magic threshold between investment grade and below investment grade. And that is a, a set of activities that are really unleashed by the fact that these ratings are so consequential. They really matter. And the, the parties that create them are, you know, private parties. They have no public mandate. They have no collective responsibility. They're subject to a little bit of regulation. So one of the things that happened after 2008 you know, there was a kind of domestic reform in the United States, and I referred to Dodd-Frank, you know, but there were other, there was talk in Europe, for example, of creating a European rating agency, you know, because why should the entire world be beholden to the opinions of a bunch of analysts who are based in New York City, especially given that these analysts and what they think were proving to be so faithful to borrowers around the globe, and especially given that they did such a poor job of it. The Chinese also thought, why should we, you know, allow ourselves to, to be beholden to these New York-based Western analysts? 
So the Chinese got into the business of creating their own rating agencies. So domestically, there were a series of small reforms that happened in the wake of the global financial crisis. But internationally, there was a reaction as well, where other countries kind of thought, gee, maybe we should have our own rating agencies. But it turns out that that's not so easy to create, even though there was a some movement towards the creation of an independent European rating agency. I don't think it really came to anything. If I now, as a consumer, I want to borrow a larger amount of money from the bank to buy a flat or a house, and they judge me as a as a lender, if they trust me and will give me the money or how much I can get. But me in turn, I also want to trust them that they make the right judgment, right? That according to them, I will be able to pay back, which at this sort of, for me, astronomically amounts of money is quite an important factor then. So can I trust them that they make the right judgment? So here I'm going to make a small joke and reference a phrase of Ronald Reagan, which is trust but verify. So what happened originally is these, as these credit, you know, we're, we're talking about individual credit now, these rating agencies were accumulating lots and lots of information about individual Americans. And in the beginning, individual Americans had no knowledge of what was in their credit report. All that you knew is that someone out there, some anonymous, invisible firm was accumulating information about you. And that information was consequential. It was being consulted by banks or lenders to decide whether to lend you money. And the consumer, the, the subject of this information, had no knowledge of what the rating agencies knew. So there have been a series of laws that have been put in place starting in the late 60s and into the early 70s that gave individuals in the United States more rights. And so one of the things that they were granted was the right to know what's in their credit record. And so now once a year, I personally can try to uh, solicit from the big rating agencies for individual consumer credit. Uh, what do they know about me? What's, what's in my credit record? And one of the things that uh, people realized is that there was a lot of erroneous information in these credit records. They made lots of mistakes. And if I didn't know that there were mistakes in there because I wasn't allowed access to my own credit record, those mistakes could be hurting me and I would have no idea. I would just find it expensive to borrow or maybe I wouldn't be able to borrow. So in addition to being given the right to know what's in my credit record, I have now been given the right to correct mistakes, to tell the rating agency, oh, you think I you know, didn't repay that loan, but I did, and tell them you got it wrong. So gradually, there are now more opportunities for individual credit subjects to be able to know what's in their credit record, to be able to fix it if there is a mistake. And the rating agencies now have an obligation to correct their mistakes. But that wasn't there in the first place. And so this is the kind of verify side of the Ronald Reagan line of trust, but verify. Thanks to these regulations, these are now rules that were passed at the federal level, you know, people have more opportunity to make sure that the credit information is correct, uh, that there aren't mistakes, and they can see if their credit score is going up or down. But there still is, you know, the onus is still on the individual 
who's subject to this information to do all the work, you know, of, of making sure that it's correct and fixing the mistakes and identifying the mistakes and following up and making sure that the mistakes have been uh, corrected and so forth. So that's a lot of work for the individual, but at least they have some means to make sure that that information is credible and accurate and so forth. And what's happening now is increasingly, as, as we kind of go into a world of online commerce, you know, where people are ordering things online and borrowing money online and living their lives online and everyone's, you know, on Facebook and uses social media and so forth. What's happening is there's been a development of what's called alternative information, which the rating agencies are kind of a little ambivalent about, but there's a growing number of what are called fintech firms who are very excited about this. This is not the kind of information that went into a traditional credit score. So in a traditional credit score, you know, something like, what's your income? What was your annual income last year? That would go into your score. How long have you worked for your current employer? So the stability of employment, that would go into your credit score. Have you ever defaulted on a loan in the past? That would go into your credit score. Have you ever filed for bankruptcy? That would go into your credit score. So those are all the kind of traditional elements of a credit score. Now it turns out when you go online, there's all kinds of information that can be culled from your online behavior, but also it is correlated with your credit worthiness. And this is called the non-traditional information. And so there's a whole lot of activity being done, particularly by the big social media companies, big tech, like Facebook and, and Google and Amazon and so forth. They're busy trying to use their data that they have about people and their users to correlate to credit worthiness. But so are a bunch of startups called fintech firms. And they're very interested in, in mining all of this online big data that has exploded around the world and to see if there's a way in which they can you know, improve on the job that's done by the traditional rating agencies focused on traditional credit information. Can they learn some additional things that bear on credit worthiness? So it's an area where there's an enormous amount of activity right now. And it's very poorly regulated. There are no ground rules. You know, in Europe, you have you have some data protection and privacy rules in place, but in the United States, there's almost nothing. And so, you know, who owns the data? What kind of obligations are there for privacy or, or cybersecurity? All of that stuff is up for grabs. It's really like the Wild West right now. Yeah, because one of my questions was if you can uh, trust the credit rating, rating agencies, but I guess maybe... Maybe not so much then, or what do you think? <laughs> I would say in general, they do a good job, you know, in the sense that there's a rough correlation between somebody's FICO score and their credit performance, but there are many unresolved issues. And so it's not a simple matter of accepting it as it is. Certainly, again, one of the peculiarities of one of the Distinctive features of American society is durable racial inequality. And I mentioned that when I was talking about how mortgage markets operate and you have you know, intense residential segregation in American society. Well, there's also evidence of discrimination in credit markets. And so one of the things that the, the rating agencies have to do 
and which these new fintech firms have to do is to be very careful that as they construct their scores and as they develop algorithms for you know automated underwriting and loan approval and so forth, they have to be very careful that they are not in effect reproducing new forms of racial inequality because that's illegal. But once you have these very complicated algorithms, it's no longer a simple matter of looking at a loan officer and saying, here's a loan officer who's who has racial animus and he never approves loans for black applicants. You know, that's kind of a relatively visible form of racial discrimination. But you develop an algorithm or you've got some sort of machine learning system you know, it doesn't have animus in the same kind of way, and but it still could be producing highly discriminatory outcomes. And so in that sense, yeah, the, the system of credit allocation in its kind of broad sense, it works reasonably well, but there are lots of problems and lots of potential problems. And so people really need to be incredibly vigilant to be sure that it is being equitable in how it allocates credit. And that really what's happening is that people people are being given a, a fair opportunity to borrow money at a fair price, if that's what they want to do, and that there are no kind of baked in biases or disadvantages. You know, I've talked about race, but of course, there are other social categories where you can imagine a certain level of discrimination. Gender would be one. You know, can women borrow money on the same terms as men? And historically, it was very difficult for women as borrowers in the United States. Women had a hard time developing independent credit records and being appreciated as legitimate economic actors. The assumption was always that, you know, if a woman was married, her husband was the was the decision maker and his creditworthiness was what mattered. And of course, that's discriminatory against women. So, you know, there's, you know, you have to think about religion, you have to think about race, you have to think about all kinds of important social distinctions and ask yourself if the credit system as it currently operates, is it being fair and equitable along all of these uh, dimensions? And that's a really, that's a complicated question to ask. And it could, it could be the case that in general, you know, FICO scores do a pretty reasonable job. There's a lot of work to be done to make sure that that it's currently fair and that's going to stay fair, especially given the dynamism in this sector as we move away from decision making by individuals to automatic algorithmic uh, decision making, especially when it's based on non-traditional data. So that now, if you you know go online and you know you go to an online bank and you want to borrow money, you know. That website that you go to is busy measuring, you know, what you're looking at, your clicks, what else you've browsed on your web browser, what other sites have you been to? They might be correlating to some of your your Facebook friends. You know, what are your friends interested in? What are their credit records? You know, there's all kinds of very pervasive information that's being vacuumed up. And we just don't know for sure that all of that is going to result in you know, non-discriminatory, fair, equitable credit allocation. Uh, that's where the, you know, the verify side of the of the Ronald Reagan line uh, is really important. These are things that we have to figure out.
This is a very interesting project, I think. And as you said, it's both interesting historically, but also applied to our times and to the future, how you can um, use this credit rating information also for other purposes. And just on, on that score, so one of the one of the things that in the project, of course, I've been narrowly focused on credit allocation and borrowing and so forth. And the thing about this information is that it's very portable and it is redeployed into other contexts. And so as important as it is in the context of credit relationships or, or credit allocation, it becomes even more important because people use it in other ways. And so one of the things that has happened is in the United States, employers or potential employers will consult somebody's credit score. If you're thinking maybe you should hire someone and you want to know, well, are they trustworthy? You know, are they going to be a good worker? Well, what you find is that the employers will consult the credit score, even though it's not a credit transaction. It's now an employment relationship, but they will still use the credit score. And so if you have a poor credit score, not only is it hard to get a loan, but now it's hard to get a job. Your bad score is going to haunt you if you want to rent an apartment. So you're not buying a house, but you're going to rent one. Well, the landlord is going to look at your credit score. And if you have a, a low credit score, they're going to say, I don't want to rent to this person. You know, they're not going to make their, their rental payments. I'm not sure I can trust them. Maybe they will damage the apartment and so forth. So you can't get a job. You can't get a loan. You can't get an apartment. It's being used in insurance. So it's very hard to get auto insurance. So these scores become incredibly fateful for people's lives in a way that's much bigger than was anticipated when they were created, which again is, is really another reason to kind of think, how are these scores created? How are they being used? And do we need to have in place rules that govern their fair and appropriate use? You know, it could be that maybe they shouldn't be used in all these other contexts. But right now, they are. When we talked recently, you told me about this project, which you may be just about to start, if I've understood correctly. And that is about environmental policies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project, even as though it's still in the starting grounds? <laughs> Well, this is the this is the stage of a project where it's really fun to talk about because you know I can give tell people my ideas and then I then they react to my ideas and then I get more ideas. So it's very much at the uh, early stage of formulation. But the motivation for the project really comes from the context of environmental decision making and the fact that when we consider global climate change and all of the environmental impacts of our modern economy, we're often put in a situation where we have to worry about long-term effects. You know, we're worried about what the world will be like for future generations and a hundred years from now, 200 years from now. And it strikes me that people are not very good at thinking about consequences that will unfold long after they're dead. And so the phrase, the observation that's most famous in this regard is that of John Maynard Keynes, who said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, in the long run, we're all dead. So why should we care about the future of the world when we're going to be dead? You know, because it's not going to affect us. How, how can we be 
worried about consequences that we will not bear. And of course, this is absolutely critical for questions of climate change, because we know that even though already we see important signs of global warming and climate change, the consequences are going to be even more dramatic in the future. And and so we really have to figure out a way to care about the future. So my project is really a kind of a exploration of social arrangements or social institutions that are effective in getting people in the present to think about the distant future in a way that is consequential. How to get people to care about the future, even though they personally will not be around. And so I've started to collect examples of social institutions that appear to my mind to kind of embody effectively long-term thinking. And the idea is to sort of look across these examples once I've collected them all and to ask myself, well, are there some underlying similarities or are there some underlying principles that we can use to reshape how we think about the environment and how we think about the future of, of the global climate. So one example that I've come across comes from estate planning and trusts. These are the legal arrangements that very wealthy families will establish in order to preserve their wealth for future generations within their own family. And so we have a couple of examples of trust planning that have proven to be very effective. If you recall a a very famous, richest man in the world, John D. Rockefeller, the end of the 19th century, I think he was a billionaire, you know, and and a billion dollars was really a lot of money back then. Now, you know, everyone's got a billion dollars or, or many people have, but John D. Rockefeller, I think, was a billionaire. And, you know, one of the challenges for John D. Rockefeller was how to organize his family arrangements so that you know, not only were his children going to be well off, but his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren going on to future generations of Rockefellers, who at the time that these arrangements were put in place, they were unborn. They weren't going to show up for many decades. So how were they effectively able to provide and to serve the interests of people who were only going to show up in the distant future. And I would argue the Rockefeller Family Trust and the trust planning that went in place actually has done a good job for future generations of Rockefellers, because if your last name is Rockefeller, you may be five or six generations away from John D., but generally you're you're pretty comfortable, you know, and the plan worked. So the key issues or one of the key elements of that arrangement is the idea of trusteeship, that you are going to make decisions as a trustee. You are not doing it for your own personal benefit. You are supposed to act in the interest of some beneficiary, whether or not that beneficiary actually exists. They may be unborn, so it could be a a future generation. But it seemed to me that when when we think about environmental decision-making, the notion of trusteeship, it seems to me, could be very powerful if we could not just have that be a kind of a vague meaning, but if we could define that as a very specific role, it could be quite, quite effective. 
because it's worked well within these wealthy families so that the current generation is constraining their own activities and behaving in ways that protect the interests of future generations. Well, maybe we can somehow engineer a role or a process of trusteeship that will apply to environmental decision-making. And so we will behave responsibly in the present, not because we benefit ourselves directly, but because we are acting as trustees on behalf of beneficiaries who will show up far into the future, long after we're dead, but their interests are going to motivate us when we occupy this uh, trusteeship role. So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. Uh, another example that I've come across, and again, this is all very vague and, and preliminary, but I was very struck by the kind of time horizons that uh, people who were worried about storage of high-level nuclear waste were addressing. So when you run a nuclear reactor, you produce nuclear waste, and it's radioactive for a very long period of time. It's very dangerous. Um, and so the people who are, who are storing that nuclear waste are having to ask themselves, okay, you know, is our storage facility, is it going to maintain its integrity for 100 years? Is it going to be safe and stable for 1,000 years? Is it going to be safe for 5,000 years? Because that's how long that stuff is going to be deadly and radioactive. So, so they've also had to really wrestle with very, very long time horizons that go far beyond anything that, that people normally uh, concern themselves with, simply because the, the problem that they're dealing with is a durable problem that, that will persist for many thousands of years. So that is another case where I'm very interested to learn what enabled them to really make decisions and try to engineer a solution with time horizons that were far beyond what's kind of normal for a human life. Um, you know, these are people who are worrying about 20, 30 generations into the future. That's extraordinary. But it, it seems to apply in the context of this very particular problem. So again, I will ask, what is it about this arrangement? How are they able to accomplish this? And can we generalize from the very particular issue of high-level nuclear waste to the global climate, global environment as a whole? Are there any useful lessons for us? So I'm still collecting examples. If you know of any examples of long-term thinking and long-time horizons, I'm, I'm eager. And if, if any of your listeners can think of some good examples, they can track me down by email, shoot me an email and give me your ideas because I'm still collecting at this uh, early stage. Yeah, it sounds like a very exciting project. And um, I was just thinking in the first example that you mentioned with the wealthy families who want to preserve the wealth for coming generations. I mean, that's very, in a way, it's very concrete. I mean, you have the money and, you know, it's there and you, can, you can't see it because you can't see a billion dollars. But um, it's sort of, you know what you're dealing with. And, but with the environmental issues, it's more, a little bit more abstract. You don't really know what you're saving up, so to say, for future generations. Is that a problem? I think it is a problem. I mean, it's one of the, one of the challenges is making these beneficiaries, 
sort of concrete and bringing them into your mind and thinking, okay, I have to care about these people. You know, it, I mean, it is a puzzle how to motivate yourself to care about people who don't exist. I mean, I care about the people that do exist. You know, I care about my family. I care about my friends. They're concrete. They are part of my daily life. But when we get into the issue of environmental policymaking, we are now being asked to care about people who don't exist. And so one of the challenges is to how to build a connection that is motivating, that will you know really get us to change our behavior in the present, given that the beneficiaries are people that don't exist. And the trick that obviously works in the case of family estate planning is that people feel connected to members of their family even when those members don't yet exist. So John D. Rockefeller and the other members of the Rockefeller family who set up these arrangements clearly were able to be motivated by folks whose name was Rockefeller, who were going to be part of the Rockefeller family, even though they didn't exist and no one could know, would they be nice? Would they be sociopaths? Would they be responsible? Would they be good? Would they be bad? None, you know, none of that knowledge was available. They were imagined. And, but, but they were imagined in a way that was powerful enough to make the first generation that, that made all this money and accumulated all this wealth constrain their own behavior to serve the interests of these imaginary uh, individuals. And that actually taps into, and I'm glad we had this conversation because it's a connection I hadn't, I hadn't thought. But, you know, there's a, a literature on nationalism that talks about nations as imagined communities. And this is the, a famous book by a guy named uh, Benedict Anderson. And what he pointed out is that, you know, the Swedish nation, the American nation, it's not just a geopolitical entity. It's also an entity that is imagined. We imagined ourselves to be part of a community together. And so that is motivating to us because we think about you know, what it means to be a patriot, what it means to be a good Swede or a good American, you know, that that is motivational to people, uh, even though it is it, it, it is literally imagined. Well, that tells me that the project of being, you know, of reimagining, reimagining these communities so that they encompass the unborn, the people who will come into the future. Well, maybe we can pull that off. Maybe that is something that we can do and we will feel that connection to people who don't exist, to people who are imaginary individuals. But, you know, humans are very clever, and, and, and I think there are ways we can motivate ourselves to care about imagined individuals because that's kind of what we do if we look at the cultural work of nationalism. And it certainly is the work that was happening within these kind of dynastic families that thought, okay, you know, I as a Rockefeller am connected to my forebears, the Rockefellers who came before me, and the Rockefellers who will follow me. I will feel a connection through the generations. I will imagine us all being part of a intergenerational or transgenerational community, uh, even though all of the descendants are, or many of them are imagined. They don't yet exist, and we don't know who they'll be. But people are able to do that, and I'm sure. You know, you can think of, uh, in, in the case of Sweden, there are some very old families for whom that ethos is very powerful. They think about themselves as connected to a genealogy that unfolds through time 
and they have you know received a bequest from their ancestors and they will give a bequest to their to their children and their children's children and then on into the generations who don't yet exist and that probably can be quite a powerful motivator for uh, how they organize their their affairs be exciting to follow up on this project later on and see what you have found. Time is um, passing quickly here when we're talking. So I think we can um, wrap it up a little bit with talking about SCAS and the, the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. Why I am right now in this beautiful environment and you have been here a little while ago. Uh, so how was your time here? How was your stay? Well, my stay was wonderful, but I think I was it was doomed to succeed uh, because, you know, as I said, very early in my academic career, when I was just an undergraduate student, I really acquired a taste for interdisciplinarity. And it was unusual then. It was unusual to have an undergraduate program that was so interdisciplinary, but it really made me appreciate the value in talking with people learning from people whose expertise is very different from my own. You know, I could spend uh, my entire life talking to other sociologists and just kind of staying in my own little sociological world. Uh, and, you know, we all understand each other because we've all been trained to speak the same language and we're interested in similar kinds of problems and we attack them in similar kinds of ways. And that's all very gratifying. You know, I chose sociology, you know, for a reason. So I, I like the sociology world, but I really appreciate the interdisciplinary world. And that's why opportunities like SCAS are very attractive to me. I had a great time. I enjoyed the environment that, that SCAS was able to create where they kind of bring together a cohort of people who are all individually very good at what they do, but they're all open to learning from each other, to communicate with each other, to communicate their research, and to kind of be embedded in that sort of environment. It's fun, it's intellectually stimulating, and it's just incredibly generative uh, in the sense that I get ideas for things by talking to evolutionary biologists that I would never get if I'm only talking to sociologists. So it kind of sparks my brain in a way that's really fun. And of course, Sweden is a lovely place to visit. I mean, you know, coming from the Chicago area in, in the United States, I had visited Sweden before, but I'd never lived there. And so, you know, again, as a sociologist, of course, it's very interesting to me to kind of be embedded in a different society, in a different country for an extended period of time, because I never stopped being a sociologist. So, you know, I'm very familiar with American society and I, I you know, and that's fine. That's my daily life. But to go to a different society is to appreciate, oh, things work differently in Sweden. And here's how they work. And here are the challenges that, that Swedish society faces. But here are the things that Swedes are doing well. And so it was very immersive and fun that way, just by virtue of the, of the context. So it wasn't just inside the institute. I had this wonderful interdisciplinary experience. But because of Uppsala and the environs, I was able to really uh, have a lovely year learning about Sweden and experiencing what Swedish society has to offer. 
it was all just great fun and very refreshing, very intellectually refreshing. And I made new friends, connections that I really value. And so when I had the opportunity, I was there, you know, for as on a one-year fellowship. Christina invited me to become a non-resident long-term fellow. This gave me the chance to kind of maintain my connection with SCAS. And I, of course, you know, was honored and delighted to be able to do that because it means I, you know, get to continue to help support this interdisciplinary community going forward. And when travel becomes possible again, you know, we are having our interview not in the SCAS studio, but here I am sitting in my office back in the United States because I can't travel anywhere. But life will improve and the pandemic will pass. And then I will get on a plane and look forward to the next time I can go to Uppsala and uh, hang out with the other SCAS people. So I'm that kind of personal, physical proximity is, is something I'm looking forward to and is very much a kind of one of the big personal benefits of this uh, long-term uh, connection that I have. So thank you very much for being a guest on SCAS Talks. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode on the topic of global governance. Next time, I will talk to David Sipley, who is a fellow at SCAS right now. We will talk about corporations and governments. He is also a fellow in the Global Horizons Fellowship Program, which focuses on global governance and includes the broad themes of global knowledge, cultures and regimes, global political predicaments and global futures. You can read more about the Global Horizons Fellowship Program on the SCAS website. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. In previous episodes, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, and have also dived into the topic of diversity. We are sure there is something of interest for everybody. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Bruce Carruthers once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now.